Well, all of human history can be divided into two major categories, two primary periods of time, the time before the coming of Jesus and the time after. In fact, even in the way that we record dates, we reference this, don't we? Teaching my kids about some of the days of the, uh, the founding of America, and we're using the term A.D. Often we refer to dates, 1776 A.D. Well, you know what A.D. stands for, don't you? It's Latin, Anno Domini. It means year of our Lord. It's the year of our Lord. When I was a kid, I was taught you can remember that A.D. after death, after Jesus' death. The time frame before Jesus, we, we refer to with the term B.C., the letters B.C., which we can use to remind us before Christ, prior to his coming. Now, you might know that in modern secular uh, institutions, there's been an attempt to rewrite those terms as C.E. and B.C.E. Are you aware of this? If, you, if you've heard of this, do it, nod your heads. So I see some of you heard of this. C.E. refers to the common era. BCE is before common era. And there's an attempt to try to kind of write Jesus out of the history books and just use that language altogether. The funny thing, though, is it's entirely unavoidable because the point is that the break is still common era, if that's what they want to call it, is still after Jesus. And before common era is prior to the coming of Jesus. Recently, I actually heard of a pastor saying that a student, if uh, required by their professor, to use CE to refer to the, uh, the current era, the, the, the common era of our time right now, you can use that without any judgment and just think of it as Christ's empire. I thought that might be kind of helpful. All of history is broken into two parts, before the Son of Man and after. In fact, if you were to just to become familiar with the Bible for the very first time, you'll notice that the Bible is broken into two parts. Now, in our Bible, it's kind of the majority of that text is in uh, the first portion of it, and the, the, the smaller amount of writing is in the next portion. But we call these two portions the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what they do is they refer to two periods of time in which God is relating with people. And if you were to get down to the nitty-gritty of it, you'd find that there are even some subcategories in the Old Testament period of how God dealt with people. But primarily you're going to find that God used to deal with himself in a kind of agreement between him and people called the Old Covenant. But today, because of Jesus and his death and resurrection, we now relate to and have an agreement with God in a different way than people did in that Old Testament time. I'm necessarily going to reference Old Covenant and New Covenant, and that's what I mean by that throughout this sermon. That's, the, that's what the author of our text today in the letter to the Hebrews is going to be doing. He cares to help his Hebrew readers understand that the old covenant they've been living under and their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and all the ancients have been living under for thousands of years is now been made into something different. Because now, because of Jesus, we are living in a day of a new covenant. And he strains at language and, and works hard to show that even in the Old Testament, there was written prophecy saying and foreshadowing, there is going to come a day in which we will live in a new covenant. It'll be different than the Old Covenant. And he spends chapters explaining how it's different. I'm going to be comparing those much today as I have in the past few weeks because that's the emphasis of the text. That's what the author is trying to do for us. 
Now, as a pastor, I take great joy in seeking to help you understand the texts of the Bible that we walk through. And it's why we like going through this verse at a time, just showing you what the text the scripture is so that you see it. You don't just have to trust me, that you see this is what God has written for us and preserved faithfully for us throughout the ages. I want you to see it, and I want to try to explain it so that if you were ever to go back into the book of Hebrews and do your own private Bible study, or maybe with a few people that you love, just open the Bible together, that you might have some of these things come back to mind. Oh, yeah, I think these are what these things mean. I want to try to help you in your understanding. But my task is a weighty one in the book of Hebrews, because it can be especially challenging of the books of the New Testament, especially challenging. And it's challenging for two reasons, language and culture. The language of the book of Hebrews is a very cumbersome and difficult language. Some of you might know that the whole New Testament is written in the Greek language. It's an ancient Greek, Koine Greek. It's not spoken anymore today. We, we know how to read it. We know how to speak it. There are many people who can do that today and we can learn about it, but it's a cumbersome kind of Greek. It's a high-level Greek, and so the language by itself is using words that are just harder. You've got to slow down, try to put them in the right order. Lots of words can be translated in slightly differing ways, so it's a challenging book because of language, but I think that it's an even more challenging book for us to read because of culture. Culture. The reason this is called letter to the Hebrews, or epistle to the Hebrews, epistle just means letter, is because it's written to Hebrew people people who are part of the Hebrew religion, who understand the Old Covenant, understand the writings of the Old Testament. In fact, if you were to ask a Hebrew in this day, what is your Bible, or something like that, they would only tell you the Old Testament. That's all they have. It wouldn't be the New Testament yet for them. And so this book presupposes an understanding of Hebrew religion that we don't oftentimes understand today. So those challenges are kind of big to try to climb over. And so I'm going to go slow, try to walk through these texts. My hope would be just to show you what this text is saying for your benefit. And at the end of the, the text that we're going to walk through today, I'm just going to go back through and show you what I think are the three main points that the author is making in these verses. That's what I hope to do. Our text is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 22. If you have your Bibles, you can go open those up right now and follow along with me. If you don't have your Bible with you or would prefer us to watch the screen I'm going to read it through from, from my Bible right now, and then I'm just going to put each individual uh, verse or two up there so we can all stay on the same page together. Hebrews chapter 9. Read, pray, and then go back through. That's our, that's our, uh, our mode today. Starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation... He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. 
Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, most everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love your word with the love that it is due. Trust your word with the trust that it is due. Help us to understand what only you can help us understand. Lord, we'll do the hard work of reading through and use human reading comprehension, but we need the spirit to open our eyes. And we ask that you would do that, Lord, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll go back through those verses again with you and just kind of show you what we're seeing. Verse two. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Just going to pause. I want to back up for a second and kind of explain the context to where we've been. The author is explaining to the people the system of religion that they live within. He's telling them about the temple, and which, would, uh, which actually started as the tabernacle, and how God gave this to Moses and the furnishings that were within it, and the system of how it worked out, that there were priests and high priests, and they were given the responsibility to help the people atone for their sins, to deal with the sin problems. That's what these priests and high priests were to do, and they were to do that with the tabernacle, with the temple. And after explaining the system that these people lived under, He went on to say that that is the way the old covenant operated, but now things are different. We used to be looking for a purely and exclusively human high priest, but now we have something better in Jesus. We used to have to go to an earthly temple, a physical place that's in a particular location made of stones and and, and made of objects made by sinful human hands, but now no longer. Verses 1 through 10 make this clear. He explains that the priests go regularly into the first section of the temple, performing ritual duties, but into the second, the most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, his own sins, and for the unintentional sins of the people. And the author explains that for as long as that system is enacted, is still in operation, the people were under the old covenant. I explained last week that in 70 A.D., there's that that term again, A.D., in 70 A.D., about 40 years after Jesus died, resurrected, ascended into heaven, the temple and Judaism as a religious system was utterly obliterated, gone off the face of the earth. There has not been a Jewish temple since. Jerusalem still stands without a temple on its its, uh, mount, foundation there. There still is no knowledge of the priestly systems of the Old Testament. Why? Not by accident, because the Old Covenant has been made obsolete and paved the way for a new covenant, a new agreement between God and his people. So you're going to notice here that right out of the gate in verse 11, he uses the past tense. The author shows us that even in his day, the new covenant had come. Look, Christ... When Christ appeared, past tense, as high priest of the good things that have come, 
Christ has already come and inaugurated, instituted the new covenant. We are now living, just like he is living, in the time of reformation, as it said back in uh, uh, the one verse before, in verse 10. The second thing that we'll see right out of the gate here is that Jesus appeared as a high priest, not of the old covenant, but of the new. Look, when Christ appeared as a high covenant of, high, uh, high priest of what? High priest of the good things that have come. This is actually incredibly significant. Simply put, he was not an old covenant priest. Jesus was not an old covenant priest. He was a new covenant priest. So we should not expect him or the covenant that he introduces to be carbon copies of those in the old covenant. We should expect something distinctive. It's entirely new. He goes on to say, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This language is building on what he already established. So just to say that again, he made it clear that he understood and his audience should understand that in the old covenant, the priest would have to enter into the holy place and bring the blood of sin offering in order to atone for the sins of the people. The high priest could do this once a year. He's the only one who's ever allowed to enter into the holy place. Only could be one guy in all of Israel who could do that. The temple symbolized the separation from God and his people. And that one man could do it only under very rigorous conditions. But now, because of Jesus, Jesus has entered not into that earthly temple, but into the heavenly one. That's the whole point that this author has been trying to make, is Jesus didn't just do the old covenant things, he did the new covenant things. So while men went into buildings, Jesus went into heaven. The place where we will see the archetype the original temple after which the earthly one was a pattern, was copied. Hebrews 9.24, this isn't a verse we're going to get to today, but it is, it's in the next section we're going to start covering next week. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, earthly stuff, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Jesus does what the Old Testament priests could never do. He even said back in 8, chapter 2, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The earthly temple was there for a season, a period of history, in the old covenant only, as a picture of something that was bigger and better that Jesus would come and fulfill. It was the heavenly temple, the original house of God, after which the earthly tabernacle was patterned. And because of this, his own blood, the fact that he is a high priest of the new covenant, he's unblemished, he enters into the heavenly place, not the earthly place. He secures for us, the final line here, an eternal redemption. Jesus accomplished what no high priest of the old covenant could possibly accomplish. And we'll swing back around to that point by the end. He continues on in verse 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? A bit of a background here, just so you see what's going on. Again, remember, he presupposes that we all understand the Hebrew ways of sacrifice. So let's just spin, spin everybody up together here. 
The author is referring to several of the sin offerings in the Old Testament. Under the Old Covenant, there were several ways that people did sin sacrifices. One was the regular, ongoing sin sacrifices. So if you sinned against your brother, you sinned before God, you realized it, you came right in that very day and you, you presented an offering to atone for that sin. That was a regular daily thing. And that was the responsibility of the priests. They would offer the sacrifice as mediators between you and God that you could have those sins forgiven. That was already referred to in verse 6. The second kind of blood of goats and bulls that's offered here is the one-time-a-year Day of Atonement sacrifice. And that's what the high priest was for. The priest couldn't go into the holy, most holy place. Only the high priest could go into the most holy place. In one time a year, he would atone for the sins of all the people, the unintentional sins, the ones they didn't even realize they had done because God was so holy, he held them accountable for all the areas that they sinned in that they didn't even know about. Both of these sacrifices included the blood of bulls, goats and bulls here. That, that's what's being said in the first half. But look at the next part of it. And the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So what was that second part? It's actually a different sacrifice. It's one that's also called a sin sacrifice in the Old Testament, and it's from Numbers chapter 19. It refers to the purification rite that was the ritual for ceremonially cleansing a person who had come into contact with a dead body. You catch that? So if a person in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, were to come in contact with a dead body, they're sitting by, 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 their, by grandpa's bedside holding his hand and in his old age and he passes away, they've now come in contact with a dead body. They are ceremonially unclean. They, they have to now go and be purified. And the way they would do that was with the ashes of a heifer that was burnt outside of the city. And then they'd mix that with water and they'd actually sanctify it, actually like, like sprinkle that on the people. It'd be, a, it'd be an image of purifying. Now, I want you to remember for a moment Death entered into the world because of sin. There wasn't death before sin. So the undeniable and perpetual evidence of the price we pay for our sin is that all men die, all of us. It is an unavoidable reality about living in this world. And so God wrote into the Old Testament law that if someone were to come into contact with a dead person, which is inevitable, whether on the battlefield or in the household, he or she would be considered ceremonially unclean and they would have come face to face with the ultimate earthly consequence for sin, death. And thus, the cleansing would be a reminder that only according to God's gracious provision can we be cleansed from sin. That's the point of that. All of these sacrifices could only deal with outward cleansing, however. That's all they could do. They could deal with the outward cleansing. They had no lasting effect on the sinner's heart. And that's the point he's going to make here because he says purification of the flesh. There's something on the outside. You and I are made of more than just flesh. Our flesh will die, amen. And our spirit, if we believe in the Lord Jesus, will live forever with him. Our flesh is not the spirit. This is helpful for us to understand. Because the purification of the things of the Old Testament dealt with the externalities. That was what they did. And that's why it says that they can only sanctify for purification of the flesh. But if the Old Covenant was able to do something positive, and it was, right? Something positive, purification of the flesh. The person who was ceremonially unclean could not worship with the rest of the people, 
can become ceremonially clean so that they can be brought back in. How much more, see, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, if there was any positive spiritual effect from those killing of animals in the Old Testament that just purifies the flesh, how much more will we benefit from the eternal blood of Jesus, eternal, infinite in value in the new covenant? How much more? If there was anything good to come from that, and there was some good, it could be ceremonially clean again. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, what will it do for us? Purify our conscience. You see the difference? It's not just purifying the flesh. It's not soap on our body. This is an internal change. The blood of bulls and goats could not fix the problem of the sinful heart. And I say this because in the next chapter, the author makes it clear that the animal sacrifices could never fix our sin problems. A few verses, it'll say, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So you may have blood and bulls and goats, and you may be able to have a peace with the people around you. You've done your neighborly duty. You've done your civic responsibility. You've done what has been commanded of you, but that doesn't change your heart. This means that a person could have a sin dealt with in one way and not have it dealt with in a deeper way. And you totally know what this is like. You, you feel this all the time. This happens in your life and relationships with people all the time. Explain. Using an Old Testament example. In the Old Testament, the, the penalty for theft was restitution. You all know that Ten Commandments tells us the moral code of God. You may not steal. You may not steal property that belongs to somebody else. What happens if you do? What's the penalty for that? The penalty is restitution. Uh, example given in, in Exodus 22, if a man steals one neighbor's ox and then kills that and slaughters it for his own family or sells it so he doesn't have it anymore, when he's found out, he has to pay back not just one ox, he has to pay back five oxen. Did you know this? It's restitution. You don't just make good on what was lost. You actually have to go over above and beyond for that now. You've got to pay more for that, okay? But after a man were to have done that, he'd be forgiven of that sin. It'd be done. He would not have any criminal penalty against him anymore. That part is satisfied. But how do you think he's relating to his neighbor? How about before God? In other words, what if the man reluctantly goes, Jesus. Dumb neighbors, fine, I'll pay, I'll pay back your five oxen. Here's the, here's the five oxen for you. I'll do it again someday in the future. No remorse, no heart change whatsoever, hatred for his neighbor, covetousness against his neighbor's property, a desire to do it again, whether or not he'll actually do that. You see, he could be at peace with the people and internally be in turmoil. That's the problem. It's yet again another problem with the old covenant system. It could never truly affect the heart. Imagine your neighbor steals your car, crashes it in the ditch, burns it up, and they have to pay five times back for that car. Are you cool with your neighbor now all of a sudden? No. Right relationship needs to be restored. A person could pay their civil penalty, but a much deeper problem remains. The law could not deal with that deeper problem. The law was good. The law should punish somebody from doing that. 
The law should give penalties that mitigate a person's future attempt. Well, I lost five oxen this time. I better not steal again. Not because of a change of heart. Just because I know I don't want to lose five more oxen. That does some good. That is good. But you see how it doesn't solve the problem, don't you? The law could never deal with those deeper issues. It seems that some people, though, both in the Old Testament day and in our day, even now, foolishly think that animal sacrifices, works, following a a religious system of law, could take away sins. The Pharisees were regularly chastised by Jesus for having the outside of the cup clean, but the inside full of poison. Having having themselves be like whitewashed tombs. The outside looks nice and clean. Inside is like filthy bones, dead bones. A corpse is what's inside. And these Pharisees floated above, above the people because they did all the things according to the law. But Jesus says, you may do those things according to the law. Even so much, in fact, that he says, when the Pharisees and the scribes teach you, Obey what they say. Isn't that crazy? Jesus said, do what they say, uh, Matthew 23, when Jesus pronounces seven woes against the Pharisees. Do what they say, not what they do. Because they say all the right things. They hold the letter of this law, but their, their hearts are far from me. Woe to those Pharisees who have the outside clean, but inside they're full of wickedness. At the root of our sin issue, could have been ultimately dealt with under the old covenant systems of law. There would have been no occasion to look for a new and better covenant. The system was broken because we are sinners. And here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm trying to say up to this point, up through verse 14. And this this is what I think the author is saying. He's trying to help his audience understand that the old covenant was insufficient. It was, it was insufficient That's why we're looking for something better. It was not able to deal with the real root of the problem. As gracious as it was, the people could not be fully and finally rescued from their sins under the old covenant alone. Question for you. If you have any knowledge of the Old Testament, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever wondered how it is that Jews living in the days of the Old Testament exile in Babylon, in Persia, Have you ever wondered how it is that they weren't able to have a saving relationship with God when there was no temple, no operating priests or priesthood active, and no old covenant rituals to atone for sin? Have you ever wondered that? People lived out the remaining parts of their lifetime in exile. The temple's destroyed. That first temple was destroyed. They don't have the Day of Atonement anymore. The priests aren't doing their priestly duties. What do they do when they sin before God? They don't have a way to deal with that. How could a person be right before God Under the old covenant, without that, the same way they can today. How could Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, Esther, Mordecai, these Old Testament figures who lived during that period of exile, how could those Jews have peace with God when there's no temple? Because peace with God has always been dependent upon grace of God through faith, not on animal sacrifice. What did the animal sacrifice uh, keep keep them doing? Persisting in the land. I've made this case for for weeks with you all to try to help you understand that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that system of law was a conditional covenant. A hundred times in the Old Testament, people say, if you obey the covenant, then God will do this. If you don't, done. And, And what's the done? Hell? No. You're kicked out of the land. 
That's, that was the conditions of the old covenant. It's going to really mess you up if you don't see this because you're going to start mixing categories and you're going to think, well, if they didn't do all the works in the Old Testament, they couldn't be saved. That's not the way it worked. You've never been saved by works. But abiding by what commanded would let you persist in the land. This is how they could have peace with God even when there wasn't a temple, when there wasn't a priesthood, when there wasn't anything in the Mosaic system because they were already out of the land. They're in another land. That's how... Because they could have faith in God. The temporal system of animal sacrifice was designed to point forward to an eternal system founded on Jesus' sacrifice. That's what it was for. If you're you're missing this, if you're stumbling over this, trying to figure it out, please let me talk to you. Let one of the pastors here talk to you. This is really, really going to be helpful for you to understand and love the Old Testament to see how these covenants work out really will be helpful for you. If you don't get this, you might have a hard time in your life today and in the future understanding the right relationship between works and faith today. This will be really helpful for you if you can get your mind around this. The old covenant sacrifices could only deal with the flesh. But the sacrifice of Jesus could deal with the root of the problem. How much more will the blood of Christ, and what will it do? Purify our conscience. The gospel deals with the internal problem. It goes to the root, the heart of the issue, the sinful heart of man, yours and mine. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first Covenant. So there are things that happen under the first covenant they could not be redeemed from in that covenant. See that? They needed something future, something else, something outside of that old covenant in order to be redeemed ultimately. In order to be, using language we saw, eternally redeemed. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. You know, the opening line of the book of Hebrews starts by saying, long ago and many times in various ways, God spoke through our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Literally, the book of Hebrews from beginning to end tells us we have no more prophets but Jesus, no more priests but Jesus, no more ultimate king priests like Melchizedek, but Jesus. The whole, that's the whole thing is, we don't even need a temple anymore because we have Jesus in a heavenly temple. The whole book of Hebrews is constantly showing these Hebrew people, you don't need that old covenant anymore. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the one. He is the only mediator between God and man. That's it. We don't need anyone else. I am a pastor. I get to stand up here and preach the word and try to serve you and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I get to try to be an example for you. I am never going to be your mediator. You will never, ever again have to go to a human man, purely only, other than Jesus, uh, in order to relate to God, ever, ever. This is a beautiful reality of the new covenant. Jesus is our final mediator. He mediates the new covenant. The new covenant, not the old. Do you see that? I'm connecting another point that I made earlier here. This is why Jesus did not need to be in the line of Levi or enter the earthly temple or wear the special earthly uh, priestly garments or repeat his sacrifice annually. Why? Because he's not an old covenant priest. That is why. He's not an old covenant priest. He's a new covenant priest. A couple of years ago, a rather famous uh, local uh, 
uh, guy in the Christian circuits, he, he uh, did evangelizing and, and teaching and stuff. He apostatized. He turned from the Christian faith. He professed Jesus for several years. He grew up in Mormonism, uh, became a bishop, a big deal. And then, then he, and he leaves uh, the Christian faith. He leaves Mormonism, uh, uh, professes Christ for a while, and uh, then he left that. And he says today that he's a Jew. He rejects Jesus as his Messiah. He publishes central arguments against the Christian faith. Do you know what they were? This is so heartbreaking for anybody who does uh, ministry of people here. It, it was so heartbreaking for the people reading through all this stuff. We had to help a lot of people try to understand how to manage some of these things. Some of his central arguments were that Jesus couldn't be a high priest because he wasn't a Levite. That's the point. You, you get that? If you, if you have bound yourself to this old covenant system and say, unless he goes inside the physical temple, he can't be the king. He can't, he can't be the, the high priest. Unless he's a sacrifice that goes into the holy places, he can't actually be the real sacrifice. Okay. He's a new covenant sacrifice. That's the point. He fulfilled all the old covenant law in bringing in the new. That's the point. Jesus never went into the temple because he went into the real one. Jesus wasn't a Levite, a son of Levi, a son of Aaron, who's the only one's allowed to be a priest. He, he's from higher than that. This is the case that this author has been making this whole time. And anyone who, who looks back to, to turn away from Jesus and says, no, 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 we need this old covenant system again, you're missing exactly what this has been saying. The new covenant replaces the old I had somebody just uh, after the first service ask the question. He goes, hey, I've heard the story about the, uh, the, the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was actually buried underneath the cross, and then when Jesus died, the blood dripped down and landed on the Ark. You guys heard about this? You ever heard this argument before? Like that was happening. It's because, why? Because the blood had to hit the Ark, otherwise it wouldn't be effectual. Yeah, in the old covenant, that Ark was tainted by the sins of mankind. That Ark was a physical object, if it was ever even there. Jesus does not do all of those old covenant things. He does the new covenant things, fulfilling old. Old is gone. New has come. The old is now obsolete, as it says in Hebrews 8. 16 and 17. I want to make a quick note on this, this, this couple of verses. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Quick note here. Remember how I said I really wanted to help you understand if you're ever reading through this on your own, you just kind of have a commentary here for this. Commentators throughout the ages have been split on what to do with these two verses, okay? Because the word will is the exact same word that's translated covenant the rest of Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament. It's the only place it shows up as will or testament maybe in some of your translations. And the reason that matters just a little bit, you can, you can ask me more about this later if you want to nerd out about this, is because commentators are trying to figure out whether the author intended to continue his line of reasoning, comparing the old covenant with the new, so he's talking about the covenant still, or if he's switching gears in just these two verses to use a pagan inheritance ritual as an illustration. By pagan, I just mean non-Hebrew. Hebrews didn't have this whole, you make a will, you die. It didn't look quite like that. That was a, a Roman thing. That was a Greek thing. So that's, they're wondering, did he switch gears and just kind of introduce this for this Hebrew audience and then back? People are split on it. Here's what it comes down to, and I think this will be helpful. Rather than chase that out at this time, I want to acknowledge it for your benefit, but I'll just say that in either case, the point is that in order for a covenant or a will to take effect, something or someone has to die. See that? 
It's, it's unavoidable. No matter what you do with that word will, you, you could nerd out about that for the rest of your life. No matter what you do with that word, the point of these two verses is saying death is necessary. Unless there's a death, there is no ratification of a covenant or a will. It cannot take effect until a death has happened. Whether you kill an animal in, in the act of making a covenant, cut a covenant in Old Testament language, or a person dies and the will takes effect. Either way, death is necessary. And that's actually made clearer by the next verse, where he says, therefore. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. You can't just spit, shake hands, covenant, seal. No, 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 no. Way deeper than that. Something must die. Why? Because it was to image, it was to illustrate what would happen if a person broke that covenant. Death. That's what. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Just kind of drawing back upon another picture of the Old Testament when all this was introduced and Moses does this purification rite and this is the way that covenants are ratified. It shows the seriousness of covenant breaking. It had to be blood. Water wouldn't cut it. Grain wouldn't cut it. It had to be something gross, gruesome, something grotesque, something of value. Something has to die in order to make this point absolutely vivid. Now, why did all the stuff have to be cleansed? Why do they have to sprinkle on the, the tent and the people and, the, and, and, and the, the, the furnishings, the vessels used in worship? The spoons and forks, literally, spoons and forks they'd use to uh, man, handle the, the sacrifices and the, the stuff on the, the uh, altar. Because even the people making those things were tainted with sin. So when they touched those objects, they were, they were corrupting those objects. You see, gold doesn't sin, but we do. Stone doesn't sin, we do. And we get our nastiness all over everything we touch. In fact, People today talk all about how humans are the, you know, the cancer on this earth. There's, there's, a, there's a part of that that's true, right, Christians? Right? We're the problem. We're the sinners. Hebrews 9.22, it kind of concludes our passage today. We'll have to come back and cover some again next week if I'm going too fast here. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Nothing is effectual without blood. And this is the way that people could be purified and how they could have their sins forgiven. But even the forgiveness of sins under the old covenant could not purify a person's conscience. It might help them persist in the land, right? Like we said. But the blood of bulls and goats is insufficient to secure eternal redemption for the people. That's what this whole passage has been arguing all that in the Old Testament was not enough. It was enough. We could just go, good, just do that. It needed an upgrade. It needed an eternal solution. Here's what I'm going to do in wrapping up. I'm going to give you three main points that I think we have to draw from this text. Three main things I think that the author, if you just kind of zoom out and be like, all right, outline, what's he hammering here? I think these three things necessarily come from this. Number one, Jesus had to die for our sins. Jesus had to die for our sins. 
His death was necessary. It's necessary. Not just bleed a little bit. Remember the Old Testament sacrifices that he's offering up all the time? It's not like they got a little lamb, they put it on a table, and they kind of surgically cut a little part of its arm and got some blood on there, and then they let him go and put a Band-Aid on him. They had to kill that thing. They slit its throat, took the blood. Guys, this is a gruesome passage. Have you noticed this? At least 13 times in this passage, the word blood or death is being drawn upon. In just these verses alone, why is it so grotesque? Why is it so bloody? There's a reason behind this. But I want to acknowledge, to our modern minds, we sometimes get hung up on the grotesque nature of just the blood. And I think that's for two reasons. First, we just have become far removed from the death of animals. That's one thing. We're just not familiar with that. Very few of you, I suspect, have ever killed your animal before you ate it. Maybe in your lifetime. For thousands of years, somebody in your household killed the food you were about to eat. That's just the way that it worked. And so we just don't have a familiarity like others do. My wife calls me upstairs to, cu- to cut the fat off of chicken because she doesn't like to touch it. And I go after that like I'm field dressing a deer, right? Like I'm like, yeah, I'm going to touch it. It's already dead. It's just sitting there. It's kind of clean as it is. We're not familiar with that. So it's already we have a cultural distancing. But that's just pragmatic. That's just it's happenstance that we just happen to be removed from that. That's just one of the bridges. But there's a bigger bridge that's way more significant. And that bridge is that we don't realize just how grotesque our sin really is. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Guys, there's blood all over everything in that temple. It was like sprinkled all over the place in that temple and on their robes. And and, and at the people and stuff. Death was a part of every sacrifice that was taking place to atone for sins. And it was supposed to be grotesque because your sin is grotesque. Your sin really is that bad. It really is that gross. And it leads to death. That's the point. If you're thinking, ew, that's icky. Yeah, you're right, it's icky. And that's nothing. That's just the blood of an animal, a sinless animal. They They didn't do anything wrong. Plucked because they had no blemishes. They were, they were plucked out of the flock and killed for you. You're the one who caused that. That's the point. You get it? In fact, there was a laying on of hands in, in the priestly sacrifice. Did you guys know this? A laying on of hands? Do you, know, do you know where the hands were laid? No hands were ever laid on a human in the Old Testament in order to do some kind of passing of authority. Never happened. But there were hands laid on the head of an animal. A man would come up, bring the, bring the little lamb for a sacrifice. Let's say if he was wealthy enough to have a lamb, and he would say, this is for the sins of me and for my family. And they would lay their hands on the head of the sacrifice in, in a symbol of transferring sin to that animal and then kill it. It's supposed to be bloody. That's how ugly our sin is. The first death in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3, and it's implied People in the garden. Do you remember the story? Adam and Eve in the garden. They sin against God. He says, you can have all the trees out there, all the, all the plant life you want to eat. You can eat all that stuff. But one tree is mine. And they go, ooh, that's the one we want. They take the fruit. They eat of the fruit. They fall for the deception of the serpent. God brings them together. They realize their sin. They cover up with fig leaves and try to hide their nakedness because they're ashamed before God. When God deals with their sin, kicks them out of the garden, what does he do for them? He replaces their covering with his covering. He kills an animal and it says that he covers them with skins. First death in the Bible. To cover the sins of the people. It goes back to the very beginning. Apart from the death of Jesus, we would have no hope. 
This is why Jesus rebuked Peter from trying to keep him from going to the cross. Do you remember that? Get behind me, Satan. Don't you dare keep me from going to the cross. Because if I don't die, no hope for you all. Our sin really is that ugly. The sprinkling of the tabernacle, even the act of worship of constructing the ancient tabernacle was not incorruptible. Well, I'm worshiping. I'm making, I'm making the Ark of the Covenant. You're getting your sin all over it. God is holy and we are not. This should be incredibly frightening to us. Except that because of God's great love for us, he sent his son to bear the penalty for our sins by dying, just like the sacrifice had to die. He had to die. In fact, what's the point that the will or the covenant takes effect at Death. When was the new covenant ratified? At the cross. At the cross. This is why we love the cross. Now, of course, it's possible for somebody to venerate a symbol, to make an image an object of worship, and that's wicked. This is why Christians throughout history love the cross. We sing about the cross. We wear the cross. We get tattoos of the cross. Why? Why is that? You know what's nonsensical to so many people? My Mormon neighbors ask me, like, what's the deal with the cross thing, man? Like, don't you realize how bloody that is, how grotesque? Yeah, man, it is bloody. It is grotesque. I've actually had some of my, my uh, dear Mormon neighbors say, you realize that's, a, that's, a, that's like an image of torture, the crucifixion, the cross. Would you wear an electric chair around your neck? Guys, listen, seriously. No, no joke. A majority of our church families have grown up in Mormonism, so this is helpful for your humans. Guys, would we wear a, a, an electric chair on our neck? Yes! If it literally was what was used by God in order to purchase eternal redemption for all those who ever will believe, you better believe we'd have one right there and we'd be singing about the electric chair. Seriously, we would. Because that's where he defeated death. That's where he defeated the enemy. And that's the place where Jesus delivers us from the lifelong fear of death, the slavery to that, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15. That's where it happened. That cross is powerless over us because of what Jesus did. You better believe we'd have that. That'd be on the top of steeples. And trust me, the cross is way worse than that. But we love it because of what God did there. It's, a, it's an image of his love that's so big that he died. He died for us. So for us, it's a beautiful thing. The death of Jesus is an essential part of any gospel presentation. Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody? And uh, in, in sharing that, you know, you might not see them for a while, and you walk away, you're like, oh, I didn't say anything about Jesus' death. Call them. Text them, because you missed. I, I love you. I'll be really honest. If you didn't talk about Jesus' death and resurrection, that's a whiff. Swing and a miss. Whoa, whoa, hold on, sorry. I missed a really important point. You know, Paul says that if we reject the resurrection, if Jesus didn't raise, none of us can raise. Our faith is futile. We are worse than a non-believer. You know that Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15? That's how important the death is. We have communion regularly as a church body, and Christians over the, all throughout the world do this regularly. Why? What is it? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us what the blood and the body, us taking those in, is representing. We proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. That's what it is. That's why we use red stuff that reminds us of blood and physical bread stuff that reminds us of body. It's why we use it. It's, 
to be an image, an illustration to us of something so critical and important. And I've got to move. Number two, Jesus' death deals with the root of the problem, our sin. If you've not sniffed it out, this is the fundamental thing that's being emphasized in this passage over and above the Old Covenant. He spent chapters explaining that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priest. Amen. Here, he's hammering this for us. What the Old Covenant could accomplish is nothing compared to what the New Covenant accomplishes because it deals with the root of the problem. It goes to the heart. It makes it so that every New Covenant member has had their sins forgiven, gone, as far as the East is from the West. You know, as a church, we oftentimes talk about the sins of homosexuality and abortion. We bring these up quite often. And I think one of the reasons that American Christians do this is because we should. The Old Testament and the New Testament use the sins of abortion and homosexuality to represent godlessness. If you you want the image for full-blown turning from God and hating of what is true and embracing what is evil, you find homosexuality and killing of babies. That's what you find all over. That's why those two are used. They're so representative of our hatred towards what God says is good. They are conspicuously and self-evidently wicked. So we use abortion as an example of this all the time because as a culture, we have celebrated this stuff. Celebrate. And I say this sometimes, and I think some Christians go like, really, does our world celebrate it? If you don't believe me, you need to go, just go downtown and spend some time with Chris and Kelly and Rachel and a Pastor Luke. Just go downtown and stand on the street corner and try to preach hope to those who are heading into abortion mills and try to help them have a hope to bring their baby into life instead of death. And you watch what people will do and say to you for being out there. They hate that you would dare try to rescue an innocent baby. I'm telling you, there's a love of death. I want you to imagine for a second, because this is, on, this is a hot button issue right now. We're, people are talking about this all over the place. Amy Coney Barrett about to be uh, appointed to the Supreme Court, about to actually be uh, nominated and or get her appointment. And there are people in one part of our culture right now who are freaking out freaking out that they might lose the right. Potential, potential. Maybe in the future, if all this works out in just a certain way, we might lose our right to murder innocent babies. They are freak. They're losing their mind. But I want you as Christians to think about this with me. Follow me on this. It would be a wonderful thing to criminalize abortion and punish abortionists for murder. That would be a wonderful, godly thing. And it could mitigate the loss of life in the future, and that would be good, but it is not the big problem. What's the big problem? The hundreds of millions of people who think that abortion is good. That's the problem. Do you see that? The issue is that 60 million babies have been killed because mommies and daddies have said, I'd rather kill my baby than have to deal with whatever the issues would be if they were born. Literally, that's the problem. Yes, we should seek to deal with legislation that can fix it, to mitigate evil, to save babies. We should work hard for it, and we should vote for people who will abolish it. But don't think for a minute that will solve the problem. You'll just have millions of disgruntled people who are angry that it's become criminalized. That's it. We're going to have to deal with that. This is what I mean. We need internal transformation. You guys, you guys get where I'm going at? I'm okay to use hot-button issues because I want to press on those things. We need internal transformation. We should not celebrate and do a victory lap as though the job is done if somehow we made abortion criminalized. 
We have a lot of heart work to go at now, don't we? A great majority of Christians today live and act as though it is only one way or the other. You can either deal with external issues, just laws and stuff. That's, that's the salvation of the world is getting the laws in place. And others think that the only way to deal with it is the heart thing. Who cares about the laws? Let's let them do whatever they want over there. We're not going to manage that at all. We're just going to pray that people change. Listen, we need to do both, both of those things. We need to work for the legislation of those things because it is good and honoring and right for us to punish what is evil and to protect what is good. But we are to preach truth and the gospel and that even if tomorrow every law we hoped would be enacted came and actually worked that way for us, our work would still be long from done. We, we need to deal with the conscience. We need to have consciences purified. People can suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but in their hearts they know what is right and wrong. You know what conscience means? Latin. Con with science. Knowledge. With knowledge. This means that people in their hearts, they know. They know what is right and wrong. Romans 2.15 says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. This means that the heart knows what's right or wrong because God has put that there because you're an image bearer of God. And you can suppress that truth and unrighteousness all you want. You can lie to yourselves of what is evil and what is good, but God will hold you accountable for what you know in your heart to be true. Lastly, Jesus' death secures eternal redemption. I'm going to land the plane here. Jesus' solution is lasting. How long will Jesus' redemption last? For as long as he's on the throne. That's how long. For as long as he's our great high priest. That's how long. Until he sins. Until he dies. Until he is not holy. Your redemption has been secured. If you believe in Jesus for salvation, you have been eternally redeemed eternally, not temporally. The old covenant could help people in a temporal period of time persist in the land. But today, because of Jesus and his death, we can be saved. We can have eternal life. Not temporal life, not a few thousand years in heaven, eternal life. Those three points that I think are being made here is that Jesus had to die for our sins. Second, Jesus' death deals with the root problem. He goes to the issue. He doesn't just change the law. He works on the heart. And last, Jesus' death secures eternal redemption. And if you don't yet believe that that is true, talk to somebody today before you leave. You need to talk with, with a Christian who can share the gospel with you. We're sinners. We're broken. We don't deserve anything. We don't go, look at, look at our sacrifices. Look at all of our obeying of the law. No, we'll, we'll tell you about our sins, and we'll tell you why we don't deserve heaven, and we'll tell you why we deserve death and separation from God and hell for all of eternity. By the grace of God and his great love for us, he sent his son. But whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, help us to love and trust your word. Help us to embrace what you have declared and help it to cause us to love you most, others second and self last. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.